The following sermon was recorded live at Foundation Church of Fredericksburg in downtown Fredericksburg, Virginia. Good morning and peace be with you. Thank you. If you have your Bible, please open to Jeremiah chapter 5. Jeremiah is a prophet of the Old Testament. If you don't have a Bible with you, you're welcome to grab one of the ones in the seats around you. That's our gift to you. You can keep that, take it home. If you'd like to upgrade to a nicer kind of faux leather one, I also have several of those. If you are in need of a Bible, would love to give you one. So see, see me after service if that's the case. So Jeremiah chapter 5. We're going to continue uh, in Jeremiah this week. If you've been uh, tracking with our, uh, with our schedule that you received earlier in the year, uh, you, you may think that today we are in Genesis, but today we are not. We're going to stay in Jeremiah one more week, and then over the next four weeks we'll look at the book of Genesis, first 11 chapters or so, together as Jake uh, leads us in the word there. Let's begin with a word of prayer, asking God to be with us and to help us in our time of study, and then we'll begin. Let's pray. Father, we ask, God, that you would now be with us during this time of study, that as we open your word and turn our eyes and our hearts attention to it, that your spirit would illuminate our minds to receive and understand it, to be clear about your will, that we may walk in light of it, that our hearts would be open to its teaching and its instruction to its correction, that as we sit under it, God, that we would be formed more into the image of your son, Jesus, and that those who are here but have not yet fully heard or grasped or fully experienced the power and the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that they would come face to face with that reality this morning. Lord, we ask that our, our minds and our hearts would be able to be so engaged that we would walk out of this room this morning different than when we came. We commit this time to you, to the study of your word, and for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In March 2020, the FDA issued a new ruling that every tobacco producer and every cigarette producer needed to display on their packages a new graphic warning so that it would warn of the dangers of smoking cigarettes. Now, warnings on cigarette packages have been around for a long time already, and they tell you, of course, that smoking can cause cancer, and they say that young children shouldn't smoke and pregnant women shouldn't smoke, but there was that warning on the label. But because of the branding and sort of the loopholes in that law, they were allowed to, these tobacco producers, allowed to get around this by coloring and branding their cigarette packages to the warning being almost invisible. In fact, it became nearly ineffective, simply plastering the words, this is a dangerous substance. And so in 2020, the FDA issued a new ruling that required all, by June 2021, all cigarette packages display this new graphic health warning, these pictures that depicts the real dangers of smoking. Pictures like infants who are suffering from a disease brought on by their mother smoking while pregnant, pictures of blood in people's urine. Much more graphic pictures, of course, were suggested and rejected, but you get the gist, the idea being that if you have a clear image and warning in front of you, you are much more likely to heed or at least give consideration to that warning before partaking. 
So these warnings would fe feature several textual statements, these photorealistic images depicting some of the lesser known but still very serious health risks of smoking cigarettes, the impact of fetal growth, cardiac disease, diabetes, lung disease, and so much more. Well, Jeremiah 5 is a lot like these warnings on the side of cigarette packages. As we'll see in a moment, this is meant to be a clear depiction of the extremes of what sin will produce in the lives of individuals who continue to participate and set themselves in the way of sin. Sin, of course, is a rebellion against God's will, against his law. What he has commanded, what he has intended and created us to do, in rebelling against that, we have found ourselves in opposition to God. So sin is simply that rebellion against God's will, against God's revealed word, and against his command or his law in Scripture. In fact, Hebrews tells us that everything that is not of faith is sin, because we obey God by faith, as he has revealed himself to us. So Jeremiah 5 is a lot like these warnings that's meant to show us the extremes and the excesses of what sin looks like in the life of the, of the nation of Judah, so that we may heed the warning and avoid the same outcome. Now, who would receive this warning at first as Jeremiah writes this? Well, it would be those who are under exile under the Babylonians. In fact, those exiled people of Judah and of Israel reading Jeremiah's words, the effect of which says, God tried to warn you that this would come. And as you sit there and wonder how and why this has happened to you, how you got to where you are now, God has been clear. It has been your sin which brought you into exile. It's a bit like a lifelong smoker laying in the hospital bed with a tube sticking out of his neck and a breathing machine keeping him alive, wondering, how did I get here? And the surgeon coming in and saying, well, it was the pack of day for 40 years that ultimately did it. And though you were warned, you ignored those warnings, and now they will take your life. So friends, this morning, we will talk about a very serious topic. It's the topic of sin. If you read the Bible, you cannot avoid the topic of sin, though many people try. But if you've come to Foundation, or perhaps this is your first time, we talk about sin quite often. Not because we want to beat each other over the head with how terrible a people we are, but so that we can better appreciate and understand the good news of the gospel. Because sin tells us that we are in rebellion against God, and the gospel tells us that that rebellion can be put down, and instead of being executed as a criminal and a rebellious traitor, we can be welcomed, forgiven, and pardoned. So as much as Jeremiah 5 is a picture of the warning of what is to come for those who persist in sin and of the deadly consequences of that, there is also hope for sinners, which is each one of us in this room, that there is indeed still pardon available for us despite how difficult we've made our lives by our own sin. So what I'm going to do over the next maybe 35 minutes or so is look at seven effects of sin on the heart of man. Seven effects of sin, or put otherwise, what sin does to us when we partake in it. Seven effects of sin that demonstrate what sin does and what we become 
as we settle deeply into sin. These seven effects give us a picture, each one of this warning that we're to heed, lest we follow in the same footsteps of those who have rebelled against God and Judah. Let's consider the first. In verses 1 through 3, we learn that sin makes us liars. It makes us liars. Notice what he says here in chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. God tells Jeremiah to run to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem and look and take note. Search her squares to see if you can find a man who does justice and seeks truth that I may pardon her. Though as they say the Lord lives, they swear falsely. O Lord, do not lift your eyes. Do not your eyes look for truth. You have struck them down, but they felt no anguish. You have consumed them, but they have refused to take correction. They have made their faces harder than rock. They have refused to repent. Well, one of the consequences of persisting in sin is that your heart becomes so hardened, or as it says here, their faces become harder than rock against God's warnings, against his graciousness, their refusal to repent, and that they become effectually liars. Now, by liars, I don't mean every word out of their mouth is a lie, but simply the disposition of a liar is one who seeks to change the truth into something that suits them, twisting the truth so that it's more convenient for them, covering the truth or ignoring the truth or exchanging the truth for a lie. Liars need not speak lies every word, but simply need to control the narrative to their own pleasure and desires so that they can control what is true. But sin, if enjoyed and entertained and left unchecked, will so harden the heart of an individual that they become liars. Or to put another way, they become haters of truth. This becomes so complete that, look, even in Jerusalem, there is not one person who seeks truth. He tells Jeremiah, go through the streets. Go, go block by block. Run through the whole squares and see if you can find even one person who loves the truth and who does justice. And if you can find this one person, I'll pardon Jerusalem. My, my sin, my anger against your sin will abate even for a little bit. This is reminiscent of Abraham's deal that he makes with God earlier in Genesis, speaking of Sodom and Gomorrah, as God goes to punish that city, and Abraham, knowing that Lot is there, says, wait, what if there's a righteous person there? What if there's 50 righteous people? And God says, well, then I'll spare them. But there weren't 50. What if there were 20? Well, then I would spare them. But there weren't 20. But what if there were even 10? Then I would spare them. But there weren't even 10. Of course, you may be familiar with the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. God ultimately did not spare this city. But here, God gives even a greater offer to Jerusalem than Lot ever received. That even if one person in all of Jerusalem was found to be righteous, even if one person in all of Jerusalem was found to, to love justice and to seek truth, then God in his anger would pass. But not one ever sought the truth. No one acted truthfully. Look in verse 2. 
they would say as the Lord lives. They would make promises, but indeed they would swear falsely. They were hypocritical with their oaths. They pretended to be godly and pious, but in reality they lied and distorted the truth. In fact, they refused to acknowledge and listen to the truth. Their faces had become so hard, they refused, it says in verse 3, to repent. So the, the thing to remember here, friends, is that objective truth actually exists. There is such a thing as a true statement. It is not relative in the sense that you and I can make it up, or that what is true for you may not be true for another. Objective truth does exist, and therefore, objective morality based on truth does exist. There are objective right and wrongs, and the scripture is the standard by which we determine what is objectively true, what is objectively right, what is objectively wrong. But the heart of a liar, namely those who are so distorted by their sin that they take what is true, is to bend that truth into something that is untrue, to twist it, to pervert it. So what is objectively true in scripture now has gray areas that you and I can kind of play in. What seems clear in Scripture about what is right or what is wrong now becomes something that is less objective and more optional. Our culture every day is taking objective truths and making them more relative. Truths about sexuality, truths about righteousness, truths about dealings in our business, all sorts of actual truths in the Bible now become relative as long as they can fit our own narrative. In fact, repentance here, the end of verse 3, is a kind of truth-telling, isn't it? That repentance is recognizing the truth of God's word as objective, as needful. And repentance recognizes that we have truly erred, have truly perverted God's word, and so need to correct ourselves to what is objectively right. So when we repent from our sins, just as we have done a few minutes ago, Confessing and seeking repentance is a sort of seeking truth, a truth that we are sinners, a truth that in our own ways, in our own life, we have distorted the truth of God's word to fit our own ends. But what sin does, if left unchecked and continually entertained in our lives, left to its own devices, will so harden our heart that you and I become effectually liars. Well, that's the first effect of sin on the heart of man. But sin makes us liars. Secondly, sin makes us defiant. As we continue, look in verses 4 through 6. Then I said, this is Jeremiah speaking, These are only the poor. They have no sense. For they do not know the way of the Lord, the justice of their God. I will go to the great, and I will speak to them. For they know the way of the Lord, the justice of their God. But they all alike had broken that yoke. They had burst the bonds. Sin not only turns us into truth haters, into liars, but also it makes us defiant. Well, some, of course, are defiant because of their ignorance. They, they don't know what they don't know, in other words. In verse 4, we see that. They're, they're sort of ignorant of their sinfulness. They have no sin. It says that they don't know the way of the Lord or the justice of their God. This may be true for a great multitude of people on the earth that they're just simply going on about their lives completely ignorant of what God has commanded of them and demands of them as their creator. This is not, of course, to say that they are without excuse. Romans chapter 1 tells us very clearly that there is none who are without excuse. 
that all have exchanged the truth for a lie. But there still are some who have been given so much into their ignorance that they have no notion or conception of God. In fact, many in our culture and in the world today reject the notion of God. And so, of course, they don't understand his ways. So there are some who are defiant of their, because of their ignorance, right? Because they're clueless to what God demands of them. They're, they're constantly finding themselves opposed to God's will and his ways because they're simply ignorant of him as their God. But this isn't the only category of people that Jeremiah speaks to. There are others there in verse 5 who are willfully defiant, who know God, who know what God wants and expects of them, and yet still willfully defy his commands. Although they know what God demands of them, they instead choose rebellion against God. He's speaking, of course, here about the leaders, the priests in Judah who led people astray. We'll see later at the end of the chapter that it's the, the prophets and the priests that have colluded together to lead people away from God. Those who should have known better are the ones that are most guilty of such defiance and rebellion. Indeed, it's a betrayal and a true treason of God's love that Judah was guilty of. Just consider several other passages in the New Testament that speak of those who know God's will and yet refuse to obey it. The hardness of the heart that has entertained and has been beset by sin. James chapter 4, verse 17 tells us that whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Have you ever been in that position before? Knowing the right thing to do, yet failing to do it? The Apostle James tells us that's sin. Or in the parable, in Luke chapter 12, Jesus says this, The servant who knows his master's will, but did not get ready or act according to his will, will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know, and did what deserved a beating, will only receive a light beating. For everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. What's Jesus say here? That the master is coming. That there is a day where the stewards of the household of God will be accountable for how they behaved. And if they have been found wanting, neglecting, though they have been told what to do, though they know what the master expects of them, they will receive, in this parable, a severe beating. Or in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 20-22, through 22, Peter there writes, For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they would be again entangled in them and overcome by them, the last state has become worse for them than the first. Listen to what he says. For it would have been better for them to have never known the way of righteousness then after knowing it, to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. He goes on to say what the true proverb has said has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. This is the picture Jeremiah is painting here, about a dog returning to its vomit, or a pig once clean returning to lap in the mud. Or again, Jesus' own words to the Pharisees in John chapter 9, verse 41. That Jesus says to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. Here he's speaking to the teachers and the leaders of God's people and says, You have the word. You should be teaching. 
And yet, because you say you have this knowledge, you then are guilty. Your guilt remains. So sin can, can harden the heart in its defiance against God. Friends, you and I have this great privilege and blessing of having God's word in front of us, often multiple copies of God's word in our homes. And yet, we often will not do what it commands us to do. We can feign ignorance, and indeed, maybe there is some real true ignorance there because we failed to read. But the reality is that you and I are often in defiance to God's word, will, and way because of our sin. So sin not only makes us liars, it also makes us defiant. Thirdly, what sin does is makes us ungrateful. We'll continue on in verses 7 through 9. What does he say? In verse 7, How can I pardon you? Your children have forsaken me and have sworn by those who are no gods. And when I fed them to the fool, they committed adultery, and they trooped to the houses of whores. They were well-fed and lusty stallions, and each one neighing after his neighbor's wife. Shall I not punish them for these things, declares the Lord? And shall I not avenge myself on a nation such as this? What's happening here? It's another warning that sin can ultimately make us ungrateful to ultimately spurn the gifts of God because our hearts become fixed on the other things, wrong things, lesser things. There are many good things that God gives us in our life, but those things, when wrongly ordered, become things that are called idols, that we worship above God, and that we begin to spurn the true good gifts of God because our eyes have been fixed on these other lesser wrong things. We take God for granted, in other words. Paul says this in Romans chapter 2. He says, Do you presume on the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience? Not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But was that the case happening here in Judah? No. God's kindness to them was rain which would fall on their land. It was filling their bellies with food. It was sustenance and provision and grace and love. And all they did was chase after false gods. This is a spurning of God's good gifts because their eyes were fixed on idols. They were not grateful for the work of God in their lives. Friends, beware that thanklessness and this constant comfort-seeking do not lead you to forsaking your God. This God who has made you and has given you all good things. The neglect of prayer, and particularly prayer of thankfulness and gratitude, may so harden your heart that you begin to keep casting your cares and your burdens, not to God, but to these lesser things which will never fully satisfy See, sin will convince you that your happiness and your desires are the most important thing and that your desires not only are important but are essentially good and right and therefore you should pursue them. But this is what we should call hedonism. It's this, it's this pleasure-seeking idolatry which is at the root of what happens here in Jerusalem. And it will never lead to contentment. It will never lead to gratitude and humility before the Lord. In fact, this hedonism will always seek to gorge itself on the next best thing, this new and exciting thing, that shiny new gadget, 
or toy, that better office, a bigger paycheck. Hedonism will look to that attractive woman or seek out that perfect relationship. It will never stop. And it will cause your heart to become hardened in ungratefulness towards the Lord. This was the case in Judah. So sin has made us liars, makes us defiant, it makes us ungrateful. Fourth, sin makes us delusional. It makes us delusional. Again, in verse 10, go up through her vine rows and destroy, but do not make a full end and strip away her branches, for they are not the Lord's. What's the reason for this pruning? For the house of Israel and the house of Judah have been utterly treacherous to me, declares the Lord. They have spoken falsely of the Lord, and they've said, he will do nothing. No disaster will come upon us, nor shall we see sword or famine. The prophets will become like wind, and the word is not in them, and so it shall be done to them. This is delusional speak. See, as we feast ourselves on the insatiable lusts of sin, we will be silently lured into a false sense of safety and security. That's what it says there in verse 12. They've spoken falsely of the Lord and have said, He will do nothing. No disaster will come upon us. We're safe. They're tricked into thinking everything's okay, everything's fine. We're good. But this is a delusion. It says they have spoken falsely when they have countered with safety. Sin even causes us to justify ourselves by by pious or or religious-sounding arguments, even using Scripture to do so. But when we do this, we completely miss the truth. This is the point there in verse 13. They said the prophets basically are just blowing hot air. They don't truly have God's word against us. That's what the prophets were mainly to do. And so God will simply remove them from us. They basically wanted to dismiss their prophets unless they spoke good word towards them or tickled their ear, as the apostles in the New Testament would put it. A common expression of this idea that I've seen is that we tend to trick ourselves into thinking that God is okay with our sins and our, and our moral failures because, you know, he understands what we're going through. This is a very dangerous place to be. This is at the heart of the delusion to think that because we are really struggling with something, God is willing to overlook our sins in this particular area or another. And well, God is surely gracious and patient. And he surely understands the deep struggle and sorrows and sympathizes with us in every way, as the author of Hebrew tells us. He is not condoning or is happy with our sin. And if we trick ourselves into believing that everything is okay because there's no suffering going on in our lives, then surely God would not act against us or discipline us, and we can dismiss God's word or change it into what suits us, then we find ourselves under a great delusion and we'll be unpleasantly surprised when God's judgment visits us in our door. So sin has the way of making us delusional. Fifth, sin makes us fools. I wanted to put dumb, but I thought that was a little harsh. So foolish it is. In fact, look in verse 21. It says that we become spiritually blind and deaf when we ignore God's word. And in verse 20 through 25, declare this to the house of Jacob, proclaim it in Judah. Hear this, O foolish and senseless people, who have eyes but do not see, and who have ears but hear not. Do you not fear me, declares the Lord? 
Do you not tremble before me? I, I placed the sand as the boundary of the sea. It's a perpetual barrier that it cannot pass. And though the waves toss, they cannot prevail. Though they roar, they cannot pass over it. But this people has a stubborn and rebellious heart. They have turned aside and gone away. They do not say in their hearts, let us fear the Lord our God who gives the rain in its season, the autumn rain and the spring rain, and keeps for us the weeks appointed for the harvest. Your iniquities have turned these away, and your sins have kept good from you. You see the foolishness and all the provision and grace that God provides for his people, how, how silly it is, how stupid it is, how spiritually blind and deaf we must be to turn our hearts away from such truth in exchange for what is not true. See, sinful hearts will always foolishly look upon God as a relic of the past or of the sentimental figure off in the distance, sort of a quaint notion that things are kind of going to be taken care of for us by the big guy upstairs. But the real motivation should be to fear God for who he truly is. In a very real fear, it says to tremble before him. And yet, we do not fear God as he ought. In fact, that is the center of the height of foolishness, the lack of fearing God. How do we say this? Well, Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10 tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. So if you desire to be wise, you will fear the Lord. And those who fear the, law, the, the, the Lord will be truly counted as wise. So those who do not fear the Lord, God's word calls them fools. Just do a study of the book of Proverbs and you'll see constantly the foolishness of those who say there is no God. Again, in Proverbs chapter 22, verse 15, it tells us that folly is bound up in the heart of a child. Have you ever seen a, a child or, or a, a kid who has ultimately cut themselves off from a blessing or a gift because of the way they've acted or behaved. Those who have lost the enjoyment of something because they've been so short-sighted in their behavior. This has been often the case as I try to communicate to my own children. You know, your mom and dad love to give you gifts, but we can't give you and lavish you with the gifts that we would love because of your behavior. And so... The short-sightedness of a child's heart is the same sort of foolishness in our own short-sighted pursuit of sin. It says right there in verse 25 that we tend to, to cast off or to cut ourselves off from the good things that the Lord provides because of our iniquities. Your iniquities, it says, have turned these away. Your sins have kept good from you. This is the height of folly. But of course, this is what our own foolish hearts are like. Again, Paul will say in Romans chapter 1 that although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts became darkened. In claiming to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. You can see how mankind becomes debased darkened or futile in their mind when they exchange the truth of God for a lie. So sin indeed makes us foolish. Six, sin makes us wicked. Sin makes us wicked. 
It continues in verse 26. For wicked men are found among my people. They lurk like fowlers lying in wait. They set a trap. They catch men. Like a cage full of birds, their houses are full of deceit. Therefore, they have become great and rich. They've grown fat and sleek. They know no bounds in deeds of evil. They judge not with justice the cause of the fatherless to make it prosper. They do not defend the rights of the needy. He reiterates again, Shall I not punish them for these things, declares the Lord? And shall I not avenge myself on a nation such as this? Sin will make us wicked. Sin, of course, is not this small blemish or stain that can be wiped away or, or simply covered up. It's a corruption of our desires. It's a perversion of what is good. It's a debasing and a corruption of our motives and our thoughts, of our words and of our actions. That's what it means to be sinful. And though, of course, we are not as wicked as we could be, or possibly could be, thanks to God's common grace with which he restrains the evil of the heart of man. There is still scarcely a thought, a word, or a deed that is not affected in one form or fashion by this corruption. Everything we do is tainted by sin. This is why Isaiah says that even our works are like filthy rags. This is why Paul will say that everything before knowing Christ he counts as rubbish, even the good and righteous things that he sought to do in obedience to God's word. Everything is tainted by sin. The corruption of sin runs deeply into the heart of every man, woman, and child. I often joke that if children, babies, were strong enough and powerful enough, there would be no one left alive. Because when a baby wants something, it will do everything in its power to get it. I think this is why God made babies weak. They have no power to get what they want. But if God made a super strong baby, and the baby wants the watch on your hand, you may have no hand left. That's because deep inside of every human heart lurks the corruption of sin. Again, though, though we are not as wicked as we possibly can be, we're, we're not all murderers and thieves. We're not all adulterers and, and wicked people. We're not all seeking injustice. We're not all doing all the evil all the time. But this, friends, is God's restraining grace in our lives. We must recognize that sin is a wickedness that works itself up in myriads of different ways in our lives. And though God restrains the most wicked forms of those evil, if we're honest with ourselves, we know that we've had adulterous thoughts, murderous thoughts. We've coveted and therefore stolen in our minds and hearts. This is why the Ten Commandments are so helpful to us that we can see in them just how far, far short we fall of the righteous standard of God. Sin will make us wicked. And therefore, the last effect of sin, seven, sin will make us liable. Sin makes us liable to God. So because of all this, because of the wickedness and the corruption and the delusion and the foolishness, what is a righteous God to do with sinful people? Can he excuse the guilty of their crimes? Can he turn a blind eye to the, the wickedness of their ways? Absolutely not. Go back to verse 14. You may have noticed we skipped that portion of the chapter. Therefore, says the Lord of hosts, because you have spoken this word, this, this delusional word, behold, I am making my words in your mouth a fire, 
and the people would. Behold, I am bringing against you a nation from afar, a house of Israel, declares the Lord. This nation, of course, would be the nation of Babylon, who would destroy and take under captivity. But even, verse 18, even in those days, declares the Lord, I will not make a full end of you. And when your people say, why has the Lord our God done all this to us? You shall say to them, as you have forsaken me and served foreign gods in your land, so shall you serve foreigners in a land that is not yours. This is God acting. He will act according to his righteousness and justice. He has to, otherwise he would not be a fair and just judge. The justice of God demands penalty for sin. Again, he says in verse 9 and verse 29 that he must act. He must avenge himself on a nation such as this. So friends, this means that you and I are on the hook for our sins. You and I are liable to God for every offense and every wicked deed. Consider Romans 2 again. There he says that God will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. On that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. This is not to say you receive eternal life by the marriage of your good work, but seeking for glory and honor and immortality in Christ. You receive eternal life, but your obedience to unrighteousness, through your self-seeking and failure to obey the truth, will cause you before God to be vulnerable, condemned. You and I each will stand before God and render according to our own works. The question is, are we pardoned or are we not? So those are the seven effects of sin. Let's make a composite image on the side of our proverbial cigarette box. What do we see? We take out the carton of sin, we look at the warning label on it. We see a picture of a lying, defiantly rebellious heart, riddled with the disease of ingratitude and of delusion, desperately foolish and erring, wholly corrupt, and under the just condemnation and judgment of God. This is the warning. Now, it's worth pausing here and noting that I'm not saying that we are all simply victims of sin, that, that we would have been fine if it weren't for this, this pesky corruption in our heart. This is, this is Adam's fault, not us. We're just victims here. Sin is just acting upon us for poor innocent creatures. It's turned us into these monsters. It's not really our fault. The devil made us do it. But this just simply isn't true, and it's a misreading of Scripture if that's what you believe. In fact, Scripture is clear on this point here, that we are not sinners simply because we sin, but we sin because we are first sinners. By nature and by choice. Jeremiah tells us this in verse 30 and 31. It says at the end of the chapter 5, An appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. 
the prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests rule at their direction, and my people love to have it so. So, so. so is this forced upon the people? No. They love the sin. They love the wickedness. We follow what we love. And because of our heart's corruption, we seek sin and wickedness. He says, my people love it so. So, God asked Jeremiah that final crucial question there at the end of verse 31. But what will you do when the end comes? What will you do when the end comes? The heart of this question that that God poses to each one of us, we see the warning. And we have to ask ourselves, is this really what I want? Is this, is this so desirous to me that I would willingly take on the corruption, the disease of sin in order to give myself this momentary gratification? What happens when all the fun stops? Are you prepared to walk down this path all the way to where it leads? Well, friends, if you're not, what is the remedy? If you hear the warning today and you say, I, I don't want that. I don't want to be so corrupted that my heart is, is turned away from truth. I don't want to be so, so wicked that I'm liable to God on the day of judgment and I have no hope and I'll be condemned for God's wrath and fury. I, I don't want that. I see the warning. I don't want my heart to be blackened by sin. I want to be righteous. I want to honor God. I want to give to him my whole life. What, what should I do? How do I avoid what this is telling me is inevitable for those who follow the path of sin. The answer, friends, is so simple. It's to turn from your sin, to drop the pack, to throw yourself upon the mercy and grace of God. And he gives us this grace in the person and work of Jesus. How do we turn from sin? You look to Christ who died for your sin. Like the wrath of God you and I deserve is poured out on Christ on the cross. He takes on our form. He takes on flesh, though he was God himself. And he becomes for us the very sin that we endure. And he endures the sin and the wrath of God for us. He who knew no sin, it says, became sin so that you and I would become the righteousness of God. So we see what sin does and what we become when we are settled into it. But notice what God does. God gives us grace to sinners. He gives hope and pardon to sinners in Christ. Friends, where sin makes us liars, grace makes us see the truth and turns our hearts to truthfulness. Where sin makes us rebellious traitors against God, grace overcomes our resistance and brings us into union with God. Where sin makes us idolaters and ungrateful, grace will give us humble hearts before God and thankfulness and gratitude before Him. Where sin makes us delusional that we think we might earn our own salvation or be kept from suffering because of our righteousness, sin keeps us from that, but grace makes us sober-minded. Sin makes us foolish, but grace gives us wisdom as it shows to us Christ, who is the wisdom of God. 
Sin, of course, makes us wicked. But grace makes us righteous. Sin makes us liable to God and puts us under his condemnation. But grace pardons sinners. And that pardon comes and the verdict comes at the expense of Christ's life. So what do we do? We put our hope and our faith and our trust in the person and the work of Jesus on the cross for our sins. Not only so we may not continue in the path of wickedness and unrighteousness and sin, which so many of us have walked on for many, many years of our lives and continue every now and then to find ourselves back on, but it gives us the righteousness of Christ so that we may escape the wrath which is to come, that we may not experience the condemnation, but instead be freely justified by grace and walk in righteousness. Indeed, our lives can be built on righteousness. We can honor God. We can walk wisely. We can be in submission to his word. We can lead others to hope and peace and love, not because of our own righteousness, but because of Christ, which he provides for us. There is indeed pardon for sinners. Even the most hardened of criminals receives pardon on the day of judgment if his hope is in Christ. So that's my commendation to you. Christian, hope in Christ even today. That his word speaks to you now. Hope that you may receive and have received pardon, that you may walk in righteousness. If you're not a Christian this morning, my hope is that you would put your faith and trust in Christ. Perhaps for the first time, maybe you've gone to church before, you've heard Jesus talk, you heard about the gospel, you heard that he loves you, you heard about forgiveness, but you've never really fully put it into terms of your sin and Christ's death and your wrath, which you deserve, but Christ averted. Well, that's you this morning. I want you to call out to God in prayer and simply ask him, help me. And today you may walk out of this room justified like the other brothers and sisters here. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and this graphic picture of sin which every one of us, from time to time, may resonate with. Indeed, upon further reflection, more often than we'd like to admit. So, Father, would we heed this warning as Christians, may we clearly walk in faith, knowing that though we are sinners, we have been made new, that we are no longer ruled by sin, but ruled by Christ, who died for us. For those who do not know this gospel, who are not yet Christians, who have not trusted fully and, and put their faith fully and explicitly in Christ, we pray that you would so move in their lives that they would do so now. And that they would ask, Lord, for your mercy and your help and your grace, which changes their foolish, hardened, sinful, wicked hearts into a beating heart that loves you and desires to do your will. And I ask this, I pray this as always in Jesus' name. Amen. All sermons are released under a Creative Commons, non-commercial, no derivative 3.0 license. If you would like to learn more or listen to past sermons, please visit us at foundationfxbg.com.